Another cabinet shakeup unfolds in Pierre. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Wednesday, June 14th, and this is In the Moment. Veteran South Dakota journalists Jonathan Ellis and Seth Tupper are on deck for our Dakota Political Junkies conversation. We'll talk the resignation of Governor Kristi Noem's Chief of Staff Mark Miller and more in state political news later this hour. But first, a national supply chain shortage is affecting access to certain chemotherapy drugs. We'll talk with two local experts from Avera Health about how they plan to manage a shortage if or when it hits home. And Laura Rohde visits a third-generation rodeo family as the high school rodeo finals unfold in Fort Pierre. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Jackie Hendry, in for Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. The state high school rodeo finals are happening now in Fort Pierre. They started June 13th and end on the 17th. That's where top rodeo athletes from across South Dakota compete for state titles and the opportunity to compete at the national high school finals. Ahead of the finals, Laura Rohde visits a Plankington ranch for SDPB to sit down with a third-generation South Dakota rodeo family. She explores their long-standing passion for the sport. It doesn't surprise Rustin or Kama Bruns that their kids love rodeo. Our kids grew up on horses. Like, I would be pregnant and be riding horses, and they would be babies and riding with us, and they just, they, they, they grew up on a horse. So it was pretty natural just to go in and start rodeoing. It's an early morning in June, and we are sitting outside near the family's chicken coop. In addition to a small flock of laying hens, the family's primary focus are Angus and Herford cattle, which they raise with Rustin's parents, Bob and Roberta, on the family's ranch near Plankington. Horses are part of everyday life for the Bruns family because they use them year-round to help with cattle work, to move feedlot cattle, to sort pears, to move cows from one pasture to the next, to do health and calving checks. And when the workday is over, they and their horses head to the arena to practice for the upcoming rodeo. 17-year-old Royce Bruns explains. We rope, I don't know, probably every other day. And then when we, we rope the dummy here probably every evening. Royce is focused on training for the 2023 South Dakota High School Rodeo Association State Finals. He recently qualified to compete in calf roping and team roping. His sister, 15-year-old Lacey, competes in breakaway roping, but she hasn't qualified for the high school rodeo finals yet, so she has a lot riding on the upcoming June 10 and 11 regional rodeo held in Watertown. I miss my calf bull days, so I don't have any points right now, but hopefully we can get some points. Rodeo athletes need to earn three points in their event at a regional rodeo to qualify for the state high school rodeo finals and there are only four regional rodeos. Like all rodeo events, breakaway roping requires skill and perfect timing. To win the three points she needs to qualify requires Lacey to rope the calf and do it faster than most of the other competitors. Um, I think rodeo makes you tougher, like definitely, even like mentally tougher. Like if you miss, you're always like, I can get them next time. Along with training for her upcoming event, Lacey and her older brother Royce also make time to help their younger brothers Tice and Chase get ready for their events. It's good because they can like they can teach you some things and then 
can see what they're doing and then make you a little better. Tice Bruns is 11 and team ropes with his friend Grace Sainga. And even though Tice and his younger brother Chase are not old enough to compete in the upcoming high school rodeo finals, they will definitely be in the crowds cheering. Chase shared his best words of advice for his older siblings. Go get them. Sportsmanship, mentorship, optimism, perseverance, goal setting, and responsibility are all reasons Kama and Rustin are happy their children enjoy rodeo. I enjoy that it's competitive. I enjoy that like the actual rodeo part is a it's a competition, but it's mostly competition within each individual. You know, like each kid gets their personal records and and they and they have goals to be be like I want to be faster today or I want to you know I want to ride harder and unlike school sanctioned sports Rustin explained that rodeo places more responsibility on the individual athlete first of all a horse plays a critical role in a rodeo athlete's success I mean it's different than a sport in town like the school gives you your uniform and you get on the bus and they take care of you and get you there. Well, it's a whole different deal with rodeo. I mean, you got to take care of a horse. You got to have all the equipment for it. I mean, you can't just throw a horse in a trailer and go there. You got to have make sure you have your saddles, your water buckets, your hay. Rustin grew up competing in rodeo with his family. His uncle Vernon Niles taught him to rope in his grandparents' arena. He was competing at the collegiate rodeo level when he and Kama met. They were agriculture business students at Western Dakota Technical College. I grew up showing cattle and sheep, and we, we ran cattle. My mom and dad did and stuff, and so we always used horses, but we never roped or did any of that. So when we started dating, he would teach me. He taught me how to rope and stuff and then then I was team roping with him just for fun here and there so that was that was kind of how I got to know it and love it. The fact that rodeo is a sport the entire family does together is another reason the couple love it. Throughout the summer it provides them with an opportunity to take a break from ranch chores and spend time together with other farm and ranch families. Rustin Bruns. It's like a huge family you know I mean it it's like, it's generational, the rodeo thing is, I would say, huge, you know. All, a lot of the guys that I rodeoed with and gals, now it's their kid. you know, it's their kids. It's very generational, I would say, yeah. At night, it's, uh, everybody just sits, I mean, you sit around your trailers and campers and all eat together and grill together and it's, it's basically like a camping trip with a rodeo event <laughs> <Yes>. involved. <laughs> We learned that Lacey Bruns did not qualify for the finals this year, but she will be in the stands along with the rest of her family cheering on her brother Royce during the 2023 South Dakota High School Rodeo Finals. For South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Laura Rohde. You can find this story and more at sdpb.org news. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Jackie Hendry, in for Lori Walsh. The Food and Drug Administration says 14 drugs used to treat cancer are in a short supply. This nationwide shortage is forcing some oncologists to change treatment plans and ration some medications. 
The shortage is largely caused by a supply chain issue following the temporary closure of a facility in India that produces these drugs. Two local experts join me now by phone to talk about how this shortage may impact South Dakotans. First, I want to welcome Dr. Luis Rojas, a board-certified gynecologic oncologist at Avera. Dr. Rojas, welcome to In the Moment. Thank you for being here. Good afternoon, and thank you for having us today. And Emily Lively is a supervisor of Avera's Outpatient Oncology and Infusion Center Pharmacy. Uh, Emily Lively, welcome to you as well. Thank you. Emily, I'd like to start with you, if you don't mind. Uh, Tell us, just uh, give us an overview. A lot of folks may not have even known about this shortage, and I'm inserting myself here, uh, unless you are directly impacted or someone you love is uh, receiving treatments right now. Tell us, give us the overview of what's happening. Sure. So, um, in in general, drug shortages um, have been an, an ongoing issue in healthcare systems for well over 20 years, um, and so there certainly are, are a lot of resources and mechanisms in place um, that we've utilized um, in that period of time to help manage these shortages. But most recently, um, what we're hearing in the news is regarding oncology medications, um, particularly, particularly in the media has been the platinums, which is um, carboplatin, cisplatin, um, that is currently a U.S. shortage um, that will likely exist um, for the next few months. And, and really, initially, uh, we were notified about it by the FDA around uh, mid-February of this year. And um, these medications are commonly used in cancer treatment protocols, um, which is why we're hearing about it in the news mm-hmm. um, and is why it's something that's important um, to discuss here today. Dr. Rojas, uh, you uh, focus on gynecologic oncology, of course. Um, That's one of the areas that these drugs are involved in. What are you hearing from your colleagues uh, around the country about how they're dealing with this? Yes, thank you. That is a great question. These are the most commonly used drugs in gynecologic cancers, and we are very lucky here, Avera, that our systemness allows us to maintain uh, enough medications, but there are places and colleagues in the nation, in other states, that don't have access to the drugs and really are struggling to care for their patients and um, had to take alternative routes to treat them. Mm-hmm. We're hearing uh, about, of course, uh limiting uh, chemotherapy in some areas. Uh, this, My understanding is this has not hit South Dakota yet. How are we able uh, to plan for something like this? Dr. Rojas, maybe I'll start with you on that. Yeah, I think, you know, we have what we call an oncology service line that we are monitoring with the expertise of uh, pharmacists like Emily and others, uh, these kinds of scenarios all the time. So we have a very well-established action plan that has been implemented now for a while so that when a drug uh, falls into that category. Um, all our facilities are aware. Uh, our pharmacists are on top of, you know, uh, obtaining uh, enough supply to keep on stock. And the the integration level of Avera as a health system allows us to very nimble move medication from facility to facility uh, if needed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we have 
several tiers of plan. Uh, right now, we're just, you know, in observation mode because we have enough medication, but we have a plan in case uh, that is not the scenario. Yeah. Emily, say more about uh, your role in the pharmacy and that ability to be nimble when shortages like this happen. Yes. So as Dr. Rojas said, um, you know, Avera treats oncology patients um, in a multi-state region. And um, we have systems in place where we can quickly move medications um, from one site to another. And so here in Sioux Falls, I have to say also we have a team whose focus is on uh, medication shortages. And so we are well prepared to monitor many shortages at the same time, um, see where action needs to take place. We have well-established relationships with, with multiple wholesalers, with multiple manufacturers. Um, and so we can really respond quickly um, if we need to obtain additional supply in a shortage. And then we can quickly turn around if there's a particular Avera location um, that needs to treat a patient within 24 hours typically, um, we can get medication from one site that has a supply to the site that's in need of that medication so that we can maintain care for our patients regardless of where they're receiving their services. Wow. Uh, how common are medication shortages like this, Emily? Well, um, I think the there's, I guess, two things to be aware of. One is um, if the statement of medication shortages in general. Mm. Um, you know, shortages have been an ongoing issue in healthcare systems for over 20 years. Um, and so it is common at any given time to have multiple medications on shortage. Um, that doesn't mean we necessarily can't obtain them, but it does mean there maybe is a limited supply, and so we have to be wise in how we manage their use. I will say in the last um, five years, it has become more of a more prominent, um, and specifically when it comes to oncology medications, we've um, seen that become more of a concern, I would say, in the last six months, um, particularly due to the plant closure that was referenced um, at the beginning of this discussion. But as we said before, right now, um, we are able to continue to treat patients. We just have to be very mindful and diligent on a day-to-day -day basis of monitoring our supply and where the need is. Right. Dr. Rojas, as you're communicating with patients who are maybe seeing these headlines, and even if it's not here at home yet, there's, there's a, a nervousness on top of a cancer diagnosis. How are you communicating with your patients about what they should expect for their care? You know, the, the care is ongoing and has not been changed. Obviously, when patients hear the news and have concerns, we reassure them. Um, we have a plan. We have the medication. At this point, we're not really uh, allowing this shortage to impact their care. We, we're being honest, uh, just like we're here in the uh, SDPV, and, and, and we communicate with them what's going on. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some patients that are more proactive than others uh, that ha ask questions. So, uh, so yes. Yeah. 
Um, I'm not sure which one of you would want to field this question, but uh, we talked about maybe, Emily, since you mentioned it, the the uh, factory closure in India that kind of set the domino effect down of this shortage. Um, it's I was surprised to read that that single uh, uh, factory was so integral to all of these many chemotherapy drugs. Um, I guess set, set help me understand that. That seems... That seems surprising to have one place in charge of such critical care. Right, and I and I think you bring up a good point, um, and that is a topic um, that is being discussed at at multiple different levels, um, and more broadly than I guess the closure of one plant, but really talking about the resiliency of the drug supply throughout the United States. Um, certainly a concern that the closure of, of one plant could have that ripple effect. Um, and I will say that those types of concerns uh, have been voiced in the past. Uh, there are certainly um, different organizations that have held summits um, within the last five years. Um, one that was most recently was by a, a well-known national organization, um, called ASHP, um, which is the American Society of Health Systems Pharmacists, where they they really discussed um, about the infrastructure of the supply chain and coming up with um, recommendations and suggestions, either regulatory or legislative-wise, for how we can improve the resiliency of our drug supply in the United States. And so I think the closure of, of one particular plant really highlights that, but there are certainly other aspects um, within that supply chain that are being looked at to see how can we create a system that is more robust. My guests have been Emily Lively and Dr. Luis Rojas from Vera Health talking to us about the shortage of some chemotherapy drugs across the nation, not here in South Dakota yet, but keeping an eye on that scenario to ensure folks get the care they need. Dr. Rojas and Emily Lively, thank you for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Coming up after the break, we'll break down political news headlines with our Dakota political junkies. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio. Welcome back to In the Moment. I'm Jackie Hendry in today for Lori Walsh. Governor Kristi Noem has made local and national headlines lately. Our Dakota political junkies are here to discuss the stories, her actions, and possible motivations from a springtime border deployment to shakeups in her staff to targeting Target. Our junkies dive into the political news of the week. Jonathan Ellis is a veteran South Dakota reporter and co-founder of the Dakota Scout, an independent newspaper, and he joins me today in SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. Jonathan Ellis, welcome to the program. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me, Jackie. Also, Seth Tupper is editor-in-chief of the independent publication South Dakota Searchlight. He joins me from SDPB's Black Hills Surgical Hospital Studio in Rapid City. Hey, Seth, great to hear from you. Welcome to the program. Hey, Jackie, great to be here. Let's start with the most recent news that I believe Dakota Scout uh, broke, more or less. At least you're the first one I saw it from, was the resignation of Governor Christy Nome's longest-serving chief of staff, Mark Miller. Uh, seems like we hear frequent resignations from this administration. That happens. Uh, but what do you take away from this most recent news of some of the uh, resignations in the Nome administration, Ellis? 
Well, I any, any so this political opponents always use this. Uh, you, you hear this a lot about Kamala Harris, the vice president, mm. uh, that she loses a lot of staff, and, and you know you hear Republicans say, "Oh, she's a, she's a tough person to work for." I mean, I, that would be a conclusion that maybe Kristi Noem uh, is a demanding boss in some sense. Um, you know, Miller leaving is um, you know. He's, he was not from South Dakota. His family was still in Florida. So there are probably some uh, other extenuating circumstances in his departure as well. Um, I think there are some departures. I, I, you know, we, we have not heard a lot about, um, you know, we, we, did, we were hearing a lot about Christy Nome potentially running for president. We're not really hearing that so much anymore. And I think some, some people are attracted to um, what they would think would be high-profile campaigns, so not even, you know, um, not only that, that departure, but some others on the staff could be tied to the fact that you know that she's not going to be running on a national ticket, at least at least as president. Mm-hmm. Seth, what's your read on the situation? Well, <clears throat> Mark Miller was always sort of a bizarre choice for chief of staff. I mean, I, I think you know when you when you first heard that, or when I first heard, you know, a guy from Florida was going to be the chief of staff, and you know, is there no one in South Dakota who can do this job? Uh, you know, so it's, you know, his departure, he was always going to leave at some point, right? I mean, as, uh, you know, was referenced in the Dakota Scout story, he talked about his family uh, still being back in Florida and needing to get back there. So um, he was never uh, long for the state, but uh, which which I think leads you to ask then, you know, um, why were we hiring a guy from Florida to be uh, chief of staff is, is kind of a bizarre choice. But so, you know, it, some of the departures we've seen from the Nome administration, it was, you know, as, as Jonathan indicated, people who maybe were attracted here because they saw Governor Nome as a rising national figure and they thought they wanted to be a part of that and maybe they would follow her somewhere else. And maybe some people have realized that uh, that train's not leaving the station, at least right now. Uh, and so maybe they've decided to leave. And um, in other cases, it's just normal turnover. You know, um, you know, um, people that uh, left the private sector to work in government for a few years and never intended to stay and are, and are just leaving. Um, so you know, different reasons for every departure, probably. But certainly, when you when you hire people from out of state, you you probably don't expect that they're going to stay forever. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I, yeah I, I, for those who were hoping to uh, be on a presidential campaign, they they apparently picked the wrong Dakota. <laughs> So. Yeah, I mean, can we touch on that for just a second? I think a whole lot of us were, were had our sights here at home, and then our neighbor to the north, uh, surprise, or maybe not for our neighbors to the north, but was that a surprise to you, I guess, Jonathan? Yeah, I hadn't been really tracking. Uh, uh, I mean, I don't really start paying attention too much to who's in the race until probably when we get a little little into, the, into fall, um, and that's when you start to see, because there'll be some people who are in the race uh, who, who simply just don't even, they peter out even before we get get seriously going. So, mm-hmm. um, But yeah, I mean, I, I, it, you know, as, if we get up to those numbers, and of course with the, the, the former president being indicted again, uh, a much more serious indictment than the first time, uh, you know, it leaves a lot of uncertainty into that field for sure. Right. What about you, Seth? Was there do we do we foresee a uh, North and South Dakota ticket for president potentially? Maybe that's where we're going. <laughs> well, that would be that would be something, yeah, <laughs> wouldn't it? Uh, and then and then maybe we have uh, John Thune ascending uh, uh, to the top spot in the Senate if McConnell leaves, and we'll be just the entire country will be ruled by the Dakotas. But take down the time uh, the time stamp right now, and we'll come back to this someday. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it was surprising, and I think it it just it makes me chuckle, and, and I think we all have to realize and have some perspective that, you know, uh, 
political speculation is just that. You know, the last several years, you know, ever, the speculation has run wild that, that Governor Nome would run for president. And I certainly think she probably thought about it and has acknowledged that she thought about it. But it, it is kind of funny that all the while there was a guy up in North Dakota quietly uh, plotting and organizing and, and uh, really doing the work to actually – you know, seriously run for president, and and nobody saw that coming. While everybody was talking about uh, the governor of South Dakota, right. I just want to make a make a quick little uh, uh, shout out to Tony Venheisen's Sodak Governor's blog. He uh, spoke a little bit on that about the governor's chiefs of staff. He himself was a chief of staff for uh, former Governor Dennis Dugard, so has some insight into that. He's got a little table that he made up of past chiefs of staff to his knowledge and you look through here you know Jenklow has a handful uh, in both administrations rounds has a handful no one quite reached five but it's been a weird five years so what can we really take away from that kind of turnover so I just want to point that out we lead with that uh, because it's a, a recent piece of information but who's who's to say um, let's move now to uh, Seth, I believe this was from you in South Dakota Searchlight about Governor Nome's plans to use emergency and disaster money to pay for border troop deployment. This feels a little bit like deja vu to me. Uh, bring us up to speed on those conversations. Certainly, yeah, a strong sense of deja vu. So uh, she announced earlier this month that she was going to send uh, at least 50 troops to the southern border at what she said was the request of the governor of Texas. Uh, to support efforts down there to secure the, the border with Mexico. And, of course, uh, a lot of people remember that a couple of years ago, um, um, Governor Nome did a similar thing, but at that time um, she accepted a, a million-dollar donation from a, a Tennessee billionaire uh, to fund the troop deployment. And uh, so, of course, when, when this news release came out that said she was sending troops again, our obvious question was, well, how, were, how is she going to pay for it this time? And the answer we got from a Governor Nome's spokesman, Ian Fury, was that um, she was going to fund it uh, from the state's emergency and disaster fund. Uh, and it turns out the, the portion of the, the deployment two years ago that wasn't covered by the million-dollar donation, another half million dollars or so, w was covered by that same fund. But this time, if presumably it costs another million and a half dollars to, to do an, a deployment of a similar size, it'll all come out of the uh, emergency and disaster fund. And so we went back and thought, you know, what is this fund actually for? And it's it, when you listen to the uh, you know, legislative testimony, this last session, legislators budgeted uh, two and a half million dollars to put into that fund. And, you know, thanks to SDPB, we can go back and listen to all the uh, testimony of, of all the uh, committee and, and floor hearings on the on that standalone bill, which was a standalone appropriations bill. And it was really interesting because every single person who talked publicly about this bill said that th these are for things in the state or within the state's borders or in South Dakota. Uh, and it's essentially, you know, to help communities recover from disasters, natural disasters, floods, wildfires, tornadoes, and to help them prepare for future disasters. And nobody ever said that, you know, this was for, you know, this was going to go to send troops out of state down to Texas to help secure the border. So, so uh, you know, some legislators are... are uh, you know, not happy about that. And we, we talked to Lee Schoenbeck, um, senator from Watertown, Republican, who said that, um, you know, basically, uh, if Governor Nome is going to do things like this with the money that maybe legislators didn't intend, uh, she might have a little more difficulty with her appropriations requests next year. So it ruffled a few feathers, uh, for sure. And it sure seemed like she already had some difficulty with some of her uh, appropriations requests this last session. Uh, Ellis, what's your take? 
Well, she's one of uh, you know several Republican governors who have sent troops down to the to the border, um, given what's going on there. Uh, and you know there are some there's some optics, political optics, of course, to that. I don't know how practical fifty troop fifty you know troops are, uh, fifty soldiers are when you're talking about a migrant crisis of tens of thousands. You know, but uh, so there is an optic issue there. I'd also say though that with regard to the funding issue, um, there are. Um, Lots of little slush funds all over state state government that governors have used. I, I'm reminded of a of a fund I, I wrote about many years ago now, but it was funded through it was for uh, relay services, uh, telecommunications for for deaf and for the deaf people, and it was it was funded through uh, a charge, and this it built up this massive what well, massive, but this is a sizable amount of money that was in this little slush fund and. And, uh, you know, the Rounds administration was siphoning money away from it. So it's not unusual that that governors find these funds somewhere and take money. Um, What is unusual, however, as Seth had pointed out, that Lee Schoenbeck, uh, you know, hey, this is a line in the sand here a little bit. Uh, And so um, that that will be interesting to see if there are political consequences to that. Yep. Very telling. We'll stay tuned for that legislative session fallout, potentially or not. Uh, do we dare uh, tread into the realm of Target and Pride merchandise and companies and the... <laughs> Jonathan, I'm looking at you, and maybe we'll start there. I don't want to... I've already tipped my hand on my thoughts on the situation but and how much airtime I think it's worth, but... That's not me. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know that it's. It's certainly worth airtime. This is an interesting issue within the culture wars. A- yeah. And um, on one side, you know, we have the movement of you know being accepting to all people, uh, living in a very diverse uh, country. And on the other side too, you have um, uh, conservatives who feel like, hey, this stuff's getting crammed down our throats. And so it's, it's naturally a, a big, it's emerged into a major fault line um, and it's, it's got huge political consequences on both sides. And so it's, it's worth the airtime uh, because it's gonna be a, a, a big issue. Right, what about you, Seth? Well, what interests me about it, I guess, is, is uh, you know, why does Governor Noem keep inserting herself into these national issues that get her on Fox News? And as uh, your reporter, Lee Sturbinger, pointed out, uh, allows her to make a fundraising appeal immediately afterward, uh, you know, to national donors when, you know, apparently she's not running for president this time around, although we don't technically know that yet. But it, it just shows, I think, that obviously uh, she uh, is interested in staying in the national conversation and has, you know, ambitions uh, beyond, um, you know, uh, the governor's office where she'll be term limited uh, in, in 2026. And there's apparently some kind of idea in the Gnome camp that, that she needs to stay constantly in the national conversation, uh, constantly be raising money from national donors for something, whatever that is, be it, uh, you know, future run for the Senate or try and get on the ticket with somebody who's running for president or, or who knows what. But obviously, um, the fact that she keeps inserting herself into these national debates uh, shows that, you know, um, uh, she's not just going to go away and retire when, when she's term limited as, as governor. Right. And I feel I should clarify, my tired sigh is not to say that this doesn't matter. Uh, I think it feeds into a bit of that outrage du jour that sometimes we can get caught up in. But to Jonathan's point, you know, it's it's a touch, it's a, yet another touchstone in the culture war that this is a, a part of the conversation that 
frankly, maybe more people are paying attention to than pipelines or any number of other things that might seem a little bit more uh, closer so, to home. That's so boring. Pipelines. <laughs> uh, I guess I, I guess unless, unless it's your North Forty that's going to get one, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tax structure? No way. Right. Um, uh, closing, closing out just a little bit of time. We have a uh, Kaplan Strategies poll of South Dakota Republican voters finding Governor Kristi Noem the most well-liked politician in the state, winning out with 78% favorable rating compared to Senator Mike Rounds, Dusty Johnson, potential uh, uh, future candidates for governor. Um, when I hear, granted, I don't know, this is a this is a question probably for Kaplan Strategies about how we're operationalizing likability. I think about the joke of, can you have a beer with them? But uh, Seth, maybe I'll start with you on this one. Uh, how big a weight do you give a poll like this? Well, not much. I mean, it, it was sort of an oddball thing, you know, this out of nowhere Kaplan Strategies, this, this company, out-of-state company, releasing a poll that they say that nobody commissioned uh, about races that are two cycles away uh, in hypothetical matchups that nobody's committed to, right? So, so you take that with a, a rather large grain of salt. Now, you know, we're on political junkies, and I guess I'm as interested in it, in it as anybody else. I mean, the, the purpose of the poll seemed to be to show that, uh, you know, Governor Nome would, would whoop up on anybody in any Republican primary, basically, is what it showed uh, for Senate or House or whatever, you know, uh, races for Congress. So that certainly made me wonder behind the scenes, uh, and I don't know and I don't have any information on that, but it certainly made me wonder, is there some tie to... Um, supporters of Governor Nome or whatever, because the, the polls sort of seemed like a shot across the bow that said, hey, if you think you're going to go up against Governor Nome in a Republican primary, uh, you're going to lose. And um, so I'm a little curious as to where that comes from. I thought Dakota Scout did a great job, and Jonathan can talk about that, you know, pointing out that the poll left out, uh, you know, Marty Jackley, and, uh, um, which was sort of an odd an odd thing to do in a, in a poll about future uh, races in South Dakota. Yeah, very interesting indeed. Ellis, I'll give you the last 30 seconds. Yeah, I mean, uh, instead it had Russell, some former Madison lawmaker, instead of Marty Jackley, that, that uh, as a, as it was a red flag. Uh, Kaplan Strategies is a new law firm. It's a splinter group. Um, I've been on this show many, many, many times in the last, I don't know, 50, almost 15 years, and I've cautioned be very careful about polling. I've said that more than probably anything, and that we we have to be very careful about polling. And this is just this was just kind of a a treat, I guess, for political junkies. But there's <laughs> nothing really like really serious at this point in this deal. Well, that's our dessert for our time this week. Our Dakota political junkies, Seth Tupper with South Dakota Searchlight, Jonathan Ellis with the Dakota Scout. Thank you both for your time, your expertise, and your patience with me and my occasional frustrations with the subject matter. You did great. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Now let's take a moment in remembrance. Longtime boys basketball coach Larry Luchens died this weekend at the age of 81. To remember the man and his legacy, we're revisiting a conversation he had on the In Play podcast with SDPB's Craig Maddock. Larry and his son Lance Luchens spoke with Craig in February 2021. Here's part of their conversation. He played high school basketball in South Dakota. He played college basketball in South Dakota. And for but one year, he coached basketball in South Dakota. And boy, did he coach. A total of 45 years, 748 wins in boys basketball, the all-time winningest coach in South Dakota, seven titles, two different schools, 
and he's just a great guy too. When it came to coaching, was it 24-7? Was it year-round? How much time did you spend working with your kids in the off-season to get ready for the following year? As much as they wanted. It was pretty much 24-7. I never made them come to the gym, but I didn't have to. Most of the time, they they wanted to come to the gym. They wanted to be there, you know. And uh, I certainly obliged them whenever I could. <laughs> you had a it chance does, though to right. you had a chance to coach your son, Lance. How tough was it being a father and a coach uh, for Lance? It was easy. Um, you know, he, he had the same love of the game, Craig, that I had, you know, and uh we we he rode back and forth to school. Uh, he never had his own vehicle, so he rode back and forth to school with me. You know, we lived about a mile away from the school, and he rode with me every day. And, and we never, we never talked basketball in the pickup on the way to, away from, from, the, from the gym unless, unless he brought it up. If he said something, if he brought it up, then I would talk. Otherwise, we just didn't do it because I, I just didn't think it was fair to him uh, to you know, have, have me talking basketball to him all the time. And so I didn't, I never did just at, just at the gym. 1988 to 2003 in that span of 16 years, it was, uh, that was the, the heyday for Custer Wildcat basketball. You were at the state tournament 10 times. You had five titles, three runners up. Did your coaching change at all during those 16 years when you were constantly going to state tournaments and being in the finals? I don't, I don't think so, Craig. I think, I think, you know, we were doing it because we had great kids and, uh, you know, basically coach the same way. Lastly, Larry, what, uh, what do you want people to remember you most about being a coach? Well, there's more to the game than, than making a free throw or making uh, a layup. And, and I hope that, uh, I hope that the kids that played for me believe that themselves and, and know that, uh, There was more to the game than that. Tough question because there's been so many great things with your dad, but what are you most proud of about your father? Interestingly enough, the fact that I have jumped in and started writing this book, um, you know, it would be, it would be easy to give you a, a nice cheesy answer to that, that, question right there but when you start going back and there's a lot of these stories that I didn't know uh you know there's people that have come back and have said you know here's what coach Luchens did for me and I wouldn't be the person that I am today had he not took taken an interest in me um you start to read those and then you realize that that you know the influence was a little bit deeper than I might have thought um and that's what I'm proud about because it's, it's easy to say my dad's the winningest coach in South Dakota history, but that's just a statistic. It's, it's when you get to step back and you start just looking at different lives that have been changed because he had an impact on them and he took interest in that, in that person as a, a whole person rather than only having an interest in how can I motivate you to be a basketball player. Uh, that's For me, that's probably – what I'm the most proud of and, and how he did that trying to keep Christ in the center of his life and really keep his priorities um, with helping kids first. Mm-hmm.
That was legendary boys basketball coach Larry Luchens on the In Play podcast with Craig Maddock in 2021. Luchens died this weekend. There's more in the moment after the break. We'll work towards solving a musical mystery with a South Dakota State University professor. You're listening to In the Moment on SDPB Radio. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Jackie Hendry, in for Lori Walsh. You've heard of the composers Beethoven and Mozart, but their contemporary, Johann Hummel, is another famous composer, though some of his work remains shrouded in mystery. One of Hummel's most famous pieces, the Trumpet Concerto, has several markings that make determining his original intent a challenge. David Reynolds is on a mission to sleuth out the meaning behind the markings. He's South Dakota State University's director of the School of Arts and joins us from SDPB's Janine Basinger studio at SDSU. David Reynolds, welcome to In the Moment. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Uh, I understand you've been studying uh, uh, Mr. Hummel uh, for quite a while. What about him stood out to you to make this uh, nearly lifelong interest for you? Well, I've been teaching uh, trumpet for over 30 years, and one of the pieces that most trumpet teachers uh, have their students look at is the Trumpet Concerto by Hummel. It's one of the first pieces that was ever written for a chromatic trumpet, meaning a trumpet that could play all the notes that you see on the piano rather than bugle calls. Mm. And um, I had known since graduate school that there was something a little awry with the original score, especially when it came to the actual trumpet part. And um, I applied for a grant through the Griffith uh, Foundation to actually go to London, England to visit the British Library and spend three days looking at that score and trying to figure out some answers to uh, some of the puzzles that we have about this piece. Wow. Set the stage for us about just walking into that library and just standing in front of this piece that you've had so much experience with. What was that like? Well, thank you for that. Um, It took some time to uh, work with uh, my uh, liaison was uh, appropriately named for a a British librarian, Fiona. (laughs) And Fiona and I started um, uh, corresponding about a year before my trip about how to get in there, how to register, uh, the uh, appropriate way to ask to see the piece. Uh, The British Library is an incredible place. It's been in its brand new home since about 1987 and has over 170 million items. So my first uh, surprise was that within about 90 minutes of me actually putting in the application to see the piece, they found it. I just hmm. could not believe that they could do that so quickly. Here's a here's a place that has a Gutenberg Bible, two copies of the Magna Carta, Handel's Messiah, um, many of the Beatles lyrics and, and some of their original songs are on display. You can walk in and see them under glass. And I just considered it a, a great honor to be able to be considered a, a reader at that place, be, be uh, accepted as a reader and have the chance to actually sit there at a table with Hummel's original music in his ink all to myself for three days. It was really a wonderful experience. Tell me about these markings that are the crux of this mystery. 
Well, sure. Um, it's an interesting score. I'm not 100% that when he wrote the piece to begin with, that he truly had the uh, trumpet in mind because it says concerto at the top of the first page. And then over at the right in a different color of ink, it says for trumpet. <laughs> and so I um, I'm and the trumpet part itself is in a different color of ink than all the other orchestra parts. So it's almost like he had this idea of a concerto and then possibly when he heard Haydn's trumpet concerto just a year or two before that, he decided, aha, now I know what I'm going to do with the structure that I have for this other piece. I'm going to turn it into a trumpet concerto too, and then started to frame the uh, part of the trumpet uh, that's, that's in the score. Now, what makes it really interesting to me is that you have these original uh, notes that are in the trumpet score that are in black ink, but on many pages, we see this red marker. Uh, it's almost like a crayon where someone decided that the original notes that they put in the trumpet part weren't going to work for this new trumpet, and so they changed them. There's even some places where um, it's, it's in graphite or kind of a lead product. I had to research when they started making pencils, and sure enough, they had pencils back in the early 1800s. So I wasn't looking at something that someone later on might have added, um, uh, you know, in the 1900s or something like that. That's so interesting. Um, when we talk about intent of a composer, um, what, 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 are we, what are we talking about here? Why is that critical to you? Well, I think it's really, really important, and we all, as as musicians, we we take what the composer had in mind very, very seriously. Uh, we'll study and we'll talk, especially when it comes to uh, classical art forms from the late 1700s um, and, and the era that we're looking at with Hummel's works. We're always trying to do our very best to recreate an experience that would have happened at that time. And so it, when you have a black ink and lead and red and tan ink and you start asking yourself what, what was original, what, what might have been, and the trumpet player that premiered the piece uh, back in Vienna at this time, his name was Anton Weidinger, was some of this Weidinger's ideas as to how to play the piece. Hmm. Um, all very, very important things. And what's happened with this one, um, the first musicologist that really took uh, uh, took a, a real hard look at this piece was in the late 1950s, and she was from the United States. And um, she made some decisions in her first a, a modern printed edition of this that used a few a, a lot of the black notes, but it also used a few of the red notes, and um, made some decisions that to this very day we've taken as urtext, meaning it's just, you know, this is the way it's going to be. It's, it's sacred and biblical that we use these specific notes. But you start looking at the other pieces in the collection that are made, that were written by Hummel and are in, in his pen, you start use, seeing these red marks in other pieces as well, and the, the red marks look almost like they came from uh, a conductor, 
who was getting ready to conduct the score. There are crescendos and decrescendos and little marks that make you look like, okay, it's time to cue the violin to, to come in with this solo at this point. And so I think the red notes uh, that are in this piece are, are period to the time of, the, of its original playing knowing that I was able to see the same markings in many, and, and the British Library has um, literally thousands of pages of scores to operas that Hummel wrote, um, incidental music, other concertos. Mm. Um, and so I was able to uh, spend a lot of time going back and forth from the trumpet concerto to other pieces that he wrote to see if I could find some similarities and markings. Wow. My guest has been David Reynolds. He's South Dakota State University's director of the School of Arts and a detective of sorts uncovering <laughs> Johann Hummel's intent behind the trumpet concerto. David Reynolds, fascinating stuff. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. My pleasure. And that's our show for the day. We hope that it served you. I want to thank you and all of our guests. You'll be glad to know Lori Walsh is back tomorrow. She'll talk with the founder of an experimental school in the Black Hills that's not unlike the one-room prairie schoolhouses of yore. Angela Giffen of Empower Ed joins the program tomorrow. Until next time, I'm Jackie Hendry in for Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening. <laughs>